Lord Jesus, we're so thankful to be here together this morning to proclaim that there is no one like you. Lord, there's none beside you. We want more than anything else this morning for our hearts to just swell in worship for you, to see you in your glory, to see you in your holiness, and Lord, also to see the story of your grace again, or this scandal of grace that we're singing about, that though we had run from you and turned from you, you chose to come down and enter into our sin, enter into our mess. Lord, you chose to take it all upon yourself, to suffer in our place. This is, this is a great scandal. Lord, this is, this is not what should have been. We, we should have had to pay for our own sin. We should have had to take responsibility for what we had done in turning from you. But here is your love. Here is your mercy. Here is your grace that you wrap your arms around us. And so, Lord, help us this morning to have soft hearts. Help us to feel deeply and experience deeply the wonder of your grace. Jesus, we want to meet with you today. We want you to be the one who is here speaking your word to us, leading us to your heart. Jesus, that you might be exalted, that you might be glorified. As we sung about together this morning, that Lord, our only boast, our only boast would be you. Would you please, Lord, open your word up to us this morning. It's in Christ's name that we worship and pray. Amen. Uh, as you're taking your seat, if you are a child who's been checked in, uh, you can feel free to head to the back at this time. And for everybody else, I want to invite you to open up your Bible to Esther, the book of Esther. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one there in front of you, there is a rack of Bibles in the back. Feel free to go grab one. Uh, I think you'll be helped if you do have a Bible in your lap uh, this morning as we work through this. Last week, we left off at Esther chapter 6, verse 13. And so this morning, we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 6, verse 14, and then we're going to read through chapter 7, verse 10. So it'll be Esther chapter 6, 14 through the end of chapter 7. This is God's word to us. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. 
as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is God's word. A judgment is one of those aspects of the Bible that can make us uncomfortable. Uh, on the one hand, I think we intuitively know that there's, there's something good about judgment, that we want to know that people will be held accountable for their actions. We want to know that the wrongs in this world will be made right. But our relationship to judgment is a precarious one. right? We know it's important. We, we know it serves some value. But it's kind of challenging to know how we should handle it or how we should think about it. You know, when we see judgment in the Bible, is it something that we should sort of downplay and diminish and sort of sweep off to the side? Is the judgment that we see in the Bible something we should celebrate? Is it something we should be happy about? Uh, is the judgment in the Bible something that we should pick up and, and whack ourselves with or whack other people with as they get out of line or, or don't seem to be living up to, to God's standard? Uh, on the one hand, we know that judgment is important, but at the same time, we also know that it's something that's difficult to handle. It's difficult to know what to do with judgment. This morning, as we turn to, really, uh, mainly Esther chapter 7, we come face to face with judgment. And on the one hand, we are invited to cheer as Haman is exposed and tried and condemned to death. Right? This guy that we've been seeing throughout this book of the Esther, I mean, he's a terrible guy. And so we're invited to, to cheer as he is finally brought to an end. But on the other hand, this chapter warns us. Because if you're, if you're like me, as we've been working through uh, this book of, of Esther we've actually seen little traces of ourself in Haman. His pride, his foolishness, his arrogance. We see little traces of, of who we are. And so the judgment that we see in this chapter does what judgment is always intended to do in the Bible. Two things. On the one hand, judgment is intended to warn us. But on the other hand, judgment is intended to comfort us. To warn and to comfort. What do I mean? Uh, when I was in seminary, I drove back and forth between Raleigh and Myrtle Beach uh, many, many, many times, a lot of times late at night. And as I was making this drive from Raleigh to Myr Myrtle Beach multiple times at the same little spot, uh, I came up to a point in the road and I saw a, a lot of police officers with, there with their lights flashing and they had set up a little checkpoint. Now, when you pull up to a checkpoint like that, if you have something to hide, if you've done something wrong, that's a really terrifying moment. That's a scary, a scary place to be. But if you haven't done anything wrong and you pull up to a checkpoint like that, it's not a big deal. And then after the fact, as you, as you pull through, there's, there's actually something a little comforting about that. There's something a little comforting to know that there are people in the world who are upholding justice, who are, who are trying to help people follow the rules, and that as I pass through that checkpoint, the, the, the cars on the left and right of me driving down the highway, they're not driving under the influence. So there's something kind of encouraging, something comforting about that experience. Maybe more to the point, I want you to imagine what happens in a courtroom when the judge delivers a sentence and there's two different groups of people in the room. On the one hand, there's one group of people, as they hear the sentence, they are covered with shame. They realize they have been exposed, they have been tried, and now they must pay for what they have done. But at the same time, in the exact same pronouncement of the sentence, there's another, another group of people who rejoice because justice has been served. 
There is warning in judgment, but there's also comfort in judgment. And I think the warning part seems obvious enough, but it's the comfort that I think is maybe unexpected. One 16th century document, the Heidelberg Catechism. A catechism is, is, is a way of learning where you ask questions and then there's answers. Questions and then answers. And one of the questions in this catechism actually goes so far as to ask this question. Listen to this question. Listen to how odd this is or how unusual this is. How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Huh. How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? So I think it's obvious to us that judgment is a warning. But as we're going to see this morning as we work through this passage, judgment can also be a comfort to us under the right circumstances. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, We're going to look at our passage this morning, and we're going to consider six meditations on the coming future judgment. Six meditations on the coming future judgment from Esther 6.14 through 7.10. The first is this. The coming judgment will come quickly. The coming judgment will come quickly. Uh, We'll start with just verse 14 of chapter 6 again. It says, While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Uh, Last week, what we saw uh, with this guy Haman is that he had gone into the king to try to have his enemy Mordecai killed. So he had gone in hoping to have Mordecai hanged on these gallows. But he leaves instead with orders from the king to march Mordecai, his enemy, around the city proclaiming how great Mordecai was. This was a humiliating moment for for Haman. I mean, he, he is so deflated. He has been totally, like his big ego has just been shrunk down to nothing. And that's where we find him. Uh, in, in this passage, literally, the day before this. So the day before uh, this banquet that we're about to read about, Haman was boasting. This is how he was boasting. This is his own words in, back in chapter 5. He was boasting about the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then he went so far as to say this to his wife and his friends. He said, even Queen Esther... Let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she had prepared. Just 24 hours earlier, this guy was on top of the world. This guy, he thought everything. And within 24 hours, it's all slipping away. Within 24 hours, he's being picked up and whisked off to meet the king. Within minutes, he is going to be exposed. And within a few hours, he will be dead. When the Bible describes how the final judgment will come upon the earth, in multiple places, in multiple places, it describes it as a thief in the night. That the future coming judgment of God will come into this world like a thief in the night. Uh, when, when Allie and I lived in Raleigh, one Saturday afternoon, we're sitting down watching football, and I don't know, it's maybe 2.33 in the afternoon, and all of a sudden, we see sort of a commotion in our backyard. And so Allie gets up, and she opens the door uh, to, see, to see what's going on. And she, what she sees is these two young boys who are who have attempted to grab our bikes and take off with them. Now, because they tried to steal from us in broad daylight, they did not get away with our bikes. But a good thief, a thief who actually knows what they're doing, a thief who's actually thought through things, they don't come in broad daylight. No, they come in the night. They come when it's not expected. They take us by surprise. And that's the way the Bible communicates this coming judgment, that it will come, not when we expect it, not when we're ready for it, it will come like a thief in the night. 
But maybe you're thinking, well, maybe, maybe I won't be alive, you know, when Jesus breaks back into the world. Maybe I won't be alive, so, you know, why, why do I have to worry about that? The Bible helpfully reminds us again and again, again and again that our life, our life is simply a mist. We come, and then before we realize it, we're gone, and that's it. So whether it is Jesus breaking back into this world to bring the coming judgment, or whether it is our death day, either way, we're going to have this thief-in-the-night experience. We're going to be a lot like Haman when one day we will be whisked off to our final moment, whisked off to our judgment, where we will stand before God, no chance to turn back, no chance to settle our accounts, no chance to fix things, we'll be brought face-to-face with the Lord. Now, here's my heart this morning. We're going to be talking about judgment throughout the, the whole sermon, but here's my heart. My heart is not that we would walk around this, this, this world totally terrified and afraid of Jesus coming back or of us dying or something like that. That's not the point. But our, I think my heart is that every single one of us would feel ready, that we would live with a certain sobriety about what's coming in the future. This morning, as a part of our worship time, we read from 1 Peter chapter 1. What a great passage. Um, but that last verse, verse 13, I want to draw it back out. 1 Peter 1, 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter isn't saying that you and I ought to walk around freaking out because Jesus come come back at any moment. He's not saying that we should be terrified and walk around fearful over this future coming death that is going to happen to all of us. But what he is saying is that in light of the future, in light of what we know to be true about what's coming in the future, we should be ready. We should live with a certain sober-mindedness. We should prepare our minds for action. Now here's the encouraging thing. I know many of you. I have a relationship with many of you. And here's, here's as I thought about this week, here's what I thought about. If, let's just say you were to die today, or let's just say Jesus would, were to return today. There are many of you here. I know that you would be ready. Jesus would find you serving him, loving him, worshiping him, wanting nothing more than to make his name great in this world. You would be ready. But all of us have to be willing to at least ask the question, are we ready? When the coming judgment that comes quickly comes upon us, will, be, will, be, will we be ready for that moment? And that leads to the next meditation this morning. So second, the coming, medita- uh, the coming judgment will expose all things. The coming judgment will expose all things. Uh, let's read Esther chapter 7 now, verses 1 through 4. It says, So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with a loss to the king. So the build-up to this moment has been immense. Uh, For weeks now, we've been hearing the king ask Esther, what's your wish? What do you want? I'll give it to you. I'll I'll do it. And and time and time again, she puts him off. She puts him off. She puts him off. But here, finally, at this moment, she makes her request. And when when the queen, when Queen Esther makes her request, she uses it to expose Haman. Haman thought that he had been invited to this banquet because he was special. 
He thought he had been invited to this banquet because he was such an honorable person that the queen must just absolutely love. So it must have come as an absolute shock to him when the queen makes her request to the king and she uses that request to expose him. When these words, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated, the very same words that had been written into the decree to wipe the Jews off the face of the planet, when those very same words came out of Esther's mouth, we can almost imagine the the wine in Haman's mouth spewing out as he realizes what is happening. That finally Esther is actually revealing to the king the full truth of Haman's plot. He's exposed, and there's nothing he can do about it. There's nowhere for him to hide. And this is precisely how the the Bible describes the coming judgment that we're all going to have to face. I want to read from you, uh, read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter four, verse five. This is the Apostle Paul explaining to us what the judgment is going to be like. Here's what it's going to be like. He says, "Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose." the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So do you see how thorough the judgment of God will be? Guys, it's, what we're going to be judged, about, judged based on is not how we made ourselves appear to others. That's not going to be what we're judged on. We're not even just going to be judged by what actually came out of our mouth or what we actually did with our hands and with our body. What Paul's teaching us is that even the purposes of our heart are going to be exposed on that day before the Lord. Even the thoughts and intentions that we had, that we never even acted on, it's all going to be brought out into the light. The things that we've done such a good job of hiding from everybody else will be exposed. I heard a a story recently about a man who lived in Texas who uh, had built a little bit of wealth for himself through, through owning a car dealership, and, and he was a stand-up man in the community. He was a family man, and, and everyone respected him, and, 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 and he was well-loved. Uh, but he made a mistake. He went and he visited his son, who was living in Nashville at the time, and he was going to college there. And while he was visiting his son in Nashville, he hired an escort. And he, he uh, cheated on his wife, but then he kind of just went on about his life, you know, trying to put in the past and trying to live like you know, everything was normal. Until one day, he got a text message from the boyfriend of the escort saying that if he didn't pay him, if the man didn't pay him $25,000, that he was going to reveal his secret. Now, at this point, the man, he could have taken the, the boyfriend of the escort to the authorities. He could have turned him in. He could have just said, look, this guy's you know, do, trying to extort me, and he could have gotten him in trouble. But because he was so terrified of it coming out, he was so afraid that his secret would be made known if he brought it to the authorities, that rather than dealing about it the right way, he hired a a hitman to go and kill the boyfriend and the escort. So he goes about his life. He's living normal. He thinks he's gotten away with it. He thinks that he's covered it up. But then one day, without warning, without notice, without any idea in the normal course of his life, the FBI shows up and everything is exposed. Not only is cheating on his wife exposed, but now cheating on his wife and then hiring someone to murder the the people is, is exposed. It all comes out. Guys, here's the deal. Everything that you and I have ever done, it's going to be exposed. And when we try to hide it and we try to cover things up, it actually just leads us to deeper and deeper and deeper darkness. If we knew, if we knew 
that everything we'd ever done, if we knew that all of our sins were going to be brought into the light, if we knew that everybody else around us was one day actually going to see the things that we're doing, trying so hard to hide, wouldn't we be more willing to confess? But what Esther chapter 7 is trying to help us do is to realize that's not just a thought exercise. That is reality. Everything we have ever done and, and even the very purposes of our heart, they're going to come out into the open. This is the future for all of us. And this is why we want to be a church that walks in the light. Uh, back in December, we covered uh, brief, we sort of, sort of did an overview of the book of 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 9, it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Walking in the light means that we deal with our sins with God rather than pretending and hiding precisely because God has promised that if we expose ourselves, if we call foul on ourselves, he's promised to meet us with forgiveness. See, if we don't expose ourselves, if we don't confess our sins, if we try our best to hide things and cover it up, then when we finally are exposed, that sorrow that we have will simply lead to grief and regret, an eternity of regret. But if we expose ourselves, if we call foul, if we confess our sins to the Lord, then yes, we will have sorrow for what, we, what we've done, but that sorrow will lead to salvation and joy. When we're covered by the blood of Jesus, then to expose ourselves actually leads to healing rather than to condemnation. So let's walk in the light. But this leads to our next meditation on the coming judgment. And so third, the coming judgment will bring terror. The coming judgment will bring terror. Uh, we'll just look at verses 5 and 6. They say, then King Ahasuerus said to the Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king was outraged. His blood was boiling before he even knew who the queen was talking about. He didn't, he didn't even know who this was about, but he knew he was going to be upset about it. And then Esther points at Haman and says, this is the man. I love how she adds her own little pronouncement against Haman, calling him a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And in an instant, Haman's response is that he is terrified before the king and the queen. Throughout the Bible, we get different pictures of what the coming judgment will be like. And over and over and over again, anytime somebody comes into the presence of God and they're being judged, anytime we get some snippet or picture of what that future coming judgment will look like, it's always a picture of terror. It's always a picture of doom. It's always a picture of dread. This is exactly how we should respond if we are being judged and we know we're guilty. We should be terrified. Haman doesn't know yet what's going to happen to him, but he knows this. It's not going to be good. But why does the Bible give us episodes like this? Why does it reveal? Why does God reveal his judgment? What's the point of showing us this um, picture? One of our uh, church members who I love and respect told me a story about something that he did with his child. 
Uh, this child was having some trouble with telling lies, and he wanted to instill in this child the seriousness of telling the truth, the seriousness of learning not to tell lies, but instead to tell the truth. And so uh, he got this child to hop in the car with him, and they drove to the nearest prison. He and his child sat there and, and kind of talked there. He asked his child, what do you see? And, and they described it. And then he said, he began to tell them what was going on in this place where they saw the big fences with the barbed wire and this, this big, very unappealing you know, place that they were at. And then this is what this man uh, who's in our church, who, what he told his child. He said, this is where people go who disobey their parents. Now, what's the point he was trying to make? He wanted his child to know that there are serious consequences for our actions, that if, if as a child we learn to break the rules and as, if we continue breaking the rules as we get older, then there will be serious consequences. It will lead us to places that we don't want to go. And Esther chapter 7 is a lot like that. It's as if God has taken us on a journey to see what the potential future could be. God doesn't want there to be any surprises for us. God does not, God does not want you to show up at that final day and to be surprised by what's going to happen. No, he wants you to know this is exactly what's going to happen. This is how it's going to feel. When you're exposed, if you have no covering, he wants you to see that that's going to be a terrifying experience. And so what should a, seeing a picture like this do? How should it drive us? Where should it lead us? Well, there's basically three uh, directions that people tend to go uh, when they hear about God's judgment, when they hear the, a warning about God's judgment. Uh, one direction is that we try to push it away. We try to ignore it. We try to act like it's not real, or we try to come up with some reason that, 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 that it can't be that way. And then we find some other way to try to numb our guilt. So that's one way we can deal with it. We can just push it to the side, pretend it's not going to happen, and find some other thing to help us numb away the shame that we feel. A second option when we see a warning of judgment like this, and I think this is one that's really dangerous, especially for religious people, is that we hear this warning about God's coming judgment, and then we take it upon ourselves to somehow reform ourselves. We, we say, I'm going to do better next time. I'm going to make all these promises to God about how I'm going to fix this and fix that. But here's the problem. We're doing it in our own strength. And because we're doing it in our strength, we actually end up moving further and further and further away from God rather than actually moving towards God. This actually explains 99% of the religions in the world. That there's so much realization of guilt, but then we take it upon ourselves to try to fix things. We take it upon ourselves to try to save ourselves, to try to reform ourselves, to try to work our way back to God. But that's actually not what Christianity teaches. And so then there's a third option when we see the warning of judgment like this. And it's the option that the, the, the Bible calls us to over and over and over again and that is that the warning of judgment drives us to see our need for God's mercy. And we run to God for this mercy where it can only be found, in Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. If we run to Jesus, if we receive the mercy of Jesus, then that future expo exposure when everything about our heart is laid bare before everyone it actually won't be a moment of terror for us. Instead, it will be a moment of immense gratitude. See, I want to be really clear. Every single one of us, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you've put your faith in Jesus or not, every single one of us will have our lives exposed. Our hearts, our deeds, our thoughts, they will be laid bare. But if we've put our trust in Jesus, if Jesus is covering us, then the exposure of our sin won't be to lob more guilt upon our heads. The exposure of what we've done will be there to heap up the greatness of what Jesus has actually done for us. 
That as we honestly see just how deep it went, just how deep our darkness, just how deep our wickedness, just how deep our sin really was, it will simply stir in us greater and greater and greater gratitude for the fact that Jesus paid our debt for us. So this doesn't have to be a day of terror. This doesn't have to be a day of dread and doom. If we put our trust in Jesus, then this becomes a day of reverent worship, reverent thankfulness. And this leads to our next meditation upon the coming judgment and so forth. The coming judgment will turn the proud into beggars. The coming judgment will turn the proud into beggars. Uh, Let's look at verse 7. It says, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So after Haman's exposed, the king leaves. But listen, the king's not leaving to cool down. Right? You know, sometimes you leave in a situation because you need to kind of compose yourself and catch yourself. That's not why the king's leaving. The king is leaving to go figure out in his anger, in his wrath, what kind of harm he's going to bring down upon Haman. Haman sees it. Haman knows it at the end of verse 7. He knows that the king has determined harm against him. And so what does he do? Haman has a choice. Haman falls down on his face to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Guys, this is strong Haman, proud Haman, Haman who thought he was in control of the world. And here he is, down on his face, begging, pleading for his life. Yesterday, think about this, 24 hours prior, Haman was boasting about his greatness. 24 hours before this, he had gone into the king, and the king had asked him, what shall I do for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks, he's talking about me. And so Haman, Haman says, I want to wear the king's crown, and I want to wear the king's robe, and I want to ride on the king's horse. Why? Because Haman thought that's what he deserved. Haman thought he was the kind of guy who should be elevated and lifted up and who everybody else should bow down before. The day before, Haman had erected these gallows that he was going to have his enemy Mordecai hanged upon. And here he is, 24 hours later, big, bad, proud, arrogant Haman, crying like a baby for his life. When we are exposed in our sin, when we are exposed in our sin, we all become beggars just like Haman. If you're here today and you are in the kingdom of God, you don't have anything to boast about above anybody else because all we are, all it means to be a Christian is to be a beggar who has received the benevolence and the kindness and the mercy of our generous king. The question we must answer is this. We're all going to be humbled. We're all going to have this moment that Haman has. But here's the question. Will we humble ourselves and cry out to, cry out to God for mercy while there is still time? Or will we be humbled before his presence after the door is already shut? Uh, if you've ever done much travel, traveling, you've probably at least had a close call with missing a flight before. You know, you're, you're running through the airport and you get to that door and what happens? For reasons that none of us will ever understand, once that door closes, that door is shut. There have been many, many, many tears shed at closed doors at the airport. There have been many, many, many pleas for mercy denied at closed doors in the airport. Please, I've got to get home. I've got to do this. I've got to see my family. I've got to... 
I'm sorry. It's the policy. The doors are closed. The time is shut. You didn't make it in time. And this is how the Bible describes our reality. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, clearly uh, the Bible teaches us uh, how we should view our life. Really, we're focusing on verse 27, but I want to read 27 and 28. Hebrews 9, 27, 28 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here verse 27 explains life for us. Here's what it is. It's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. So when is the door open for mercy? The door is open in this lifetime. The door is open when we're alive on this earth. God is inviting us. He's warning us. He's showing us this picture that we might turn to him, run to him, cry out to him for mercy. But when we, once we die, when we die, the door is shut because it's been appointed to, for man to die once, and then comes judgment. And so everybody, every single one of us, we're beggars. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we are beggars before the Lord. And if we are a Christian, it simply means that in God's mercy, he has humbled us to cry out for him while the door was still open. That's all it means. So I want to consider what this reality of being beggars means for our life together as a church and also what it means for our, the character of our witness to the outside world. So what does being a beggar do for how we relate to each other and what does a be- being a beggar do relate to how, uh, mean for how we relate to those who haven't yet put their faith in Jesus? First, with regards to our life together, beggars don't have the right to judge other beggars. Beggars can't look at other beggars and think that they are somehow better or think that they have somehow done something better than another beggar. Beggars probably shouldn't be gossiping about each other. Beggars certainly don't have the right to hold someone down and make them pay for what they've done for them rather than forgiving them. Right? Once we have fallen down at the cross, once we have fallen down empty-handed, and, and admitted that whatever good we have in our life comes as a gift from God, once we have found ourselves down in that place, all those divisions that's, that are so common, and even those annoyances and grievances that put wedges between us, all those fall away. And with regards to our witness as a church, our, our outward witness to the lost, I don't know how you conceive or perceive what it means for us to try to invite people to Jesus or tell them about the Bible or explain to them the truth. But we ought to always take the posture that we are simply beggars who are are trying to point other beggars to the gracious king. That's our job. It's not like we figured it out. It's not like we fixed ourselves. It's not like we did anything. We simply received a gift, and we're just trying to point other people to the gift. So we don't berate, we don't judge, we don't talk at. No, once we've fallen at the feet of Jesus, once we've laid ourselves down at the foot of the cross, we learn to come alongside sinners. Because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Now, we talked a lot about the warning side of judgment. uh, But I want to turn to talk some now about the comfort side of judgment. And so fifth, the coming judgment will deliver just punishment. 
the coming judgment will deliver just punishment. Let's read verses 8 and 9. It says, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. Here, in verse 8, the king comes back in from the garden as he's fuming and as he's trying to figure out what to do in his wrath against Haman. And just as he walks through the door, he sees Haman falling down on his face before Esther. And the king misinterprets it as not Haman falling down to beg for his life, but instead Haman assaulting Esther. And so he, uh, it just racks up even more the anger that the king has against him. And if that's not enough, guys, Haman's having a bad day. Like, this is, this, is, this is rough, okay? He's already being exposed. He's already having to beg for his life. And at just that moment, one of the king's uh, uh, eunuchs sticks his hands up, and he says, Oh, by the way, king, I just want to let you know that uh, the other day, yesterday, Haman actually built gallows for Mordecai, the guy who saved your life. And he was planning to kill him. And they're, they're, they're standing in his yard right now, 70 feet up in the air. And the king swiftly says, Hang him on. I want you to listen to these psalms. I'm going to read a few verses from two psalms. I don't want you to see if you don't see in Haman a real-life picture of a principle that the Bible teaches in, in the psalms about God's justice. If we don't see in Haman a real-life picture of this principle. Psalm 7, verses 14 to 16 say this. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Listen, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he had made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. So here we have a picture of somebody digging in a hole to try to trap somebody else, but instead they accidentally fall into the hole that they've built. Sounds a lot like Haman. He builds the gallows to hang Mordecai on, but then he ends up getting hanged on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then Psalm 9, uh, 15 through 16 says this, The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Haman is a perfect picture of this principle. That in God's justice, he just steps back and he allows us to fall into our own pit. He allows our foot to get caught in our own snare. He allows the mischief that we've created to fall down upon our own heads. Haman built these gallows and then he was hanged on them. But listen to this, even more than that. Haman had attempted to falsely condemn and execute an entire ethnic group of people. And so in the end, Haman ends up being falsely accused for trying to um, abuse Esther. And that ends up leading to the taking of his own life. His own mischief has come down upon his head. His own schemes have turned back upon him. His own foot was caught in the trap that he set. This is how God's justice works. It is perfect. It is so wise. And this is the comfort to us of God's judgment. See, I know there's many people here, all of us here, at certain times in our lives, we have been taken advantage of, we have been victimized, we have been hurt by others. And a lot of times, when those things happen to us, no one's ever held, held accountable for it. There's no settling of the score. No one ever has to pay for what's been done to us. But what we learn about God's judgment in this chapter 
is that we take great comfort in this, that God has promised that he will settle every score. God will, in the end, make all things right. And this is why we're invited to be patient in the midst of our trials, because, because we leave vengeance to the Lord. Here's the deal. When we love our enemies instead of trying to get vengeance, when we love our enemies instead of trying to get vengeance, we aren't just letting it go. That's not what's happening. When you love your enemies instead of trying to get back at them, it's not that you're just saying, you know what, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to, you know, it's not a big deal, whatever. It doesn't, doesn't really bother me that much. That's not what's happening. When we love our enemies instead of trying to get vengeance, what we're doing is we're entrusting it to God. We're saying to the Lord, Lord, I actually can't execute judgment perfectly. I can't see their heart. I can't understand the situation. I'm not omniscient, and I don't have the power to carry out perfect justice like you do. And so I'm backing away, and I'm trusting that you are the perfect judge, that you're the one who will take care of it in the end. And there are, I think, a, there I think is a double comfort in this. On the one hand, we are comforted by this, that no wrong will go unpunished. Nothing done against us will not be made right. That is a huge comfort. But here's the other comfort. The burden that so many of us feel to exact that justice, the burden that so many of us feel to make others pay for what they've done to us, that burden slides off of our shoulders. We don't have to walk around in this life bearing that responsibility that, by the way, we can't bear. So we have this double comfort. God will make all things right, and we don't have to be the ones to make it happen. And this leads to our, our, our final sixth and final meditation this morning on the, upon the coming judgment. And so finally, the coming judgment will be publicly humiliating. The coming judgment will be publicly humiliating. Uh, we'll, we'll read verse 10 to close out uh, chapter 7. It says, So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So let's ask ourselves this question. Why does someone build gallows 70 feet up in the air? Well, let me tell you this. You don't build gallows 70 feet up in the air if you are trying to kill somebody in secret. The reason you build gallows 70 feet up in the air is that Haman wanted nothing more than to humiliate Mordecai. He didn't just want him dead. He wanted him, he wanted him to feel the shame of the fact that everybody would see what had happened. This was supposed to be a billboard showing everybody Haman's honor and Mordecai's shame. Showing everybody Haman's power and Mordecai's weakness. Showing everybody Haman's victory and Mordecai's de demise. But this is God's providence. This is the irony. This is the great twist. That the very instrument through which Haman was hoping he would be honored, through which everyone would see his power and see how great he was, the very instrument that he had set up to try to show off his greatness ends up being the very instrument through which God uses to bring him shame, to bring him to demise. Haman wanted nothing more in this life than to be respected, to be loved. It was borderline at times the desire to be worshipped. And yet here he is at the end of his life, 70 feet up in a pole, hanging dead for everyone to see. This is the greatest reversal 
Uh, on the one hand, this is actually, I think, a very satisfying end for this person, Haman. If you've been tracking through the book of Esther, I mean, this guy was terrible, right? He was evil. He had tried to wipe out an entire eth ethnic group off the face of the planet. So for, to see him here at the end of this book on a pole stuck up in the air for everybody to see, this is a very satisfying ending for such a wicked character. But on the other hand, the deeply moving thing to consider about Haman being hanged in the air on a tree in humiliation before everyone is that in God's providence, this is exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. Jesus, unlike Haman, actually deserved for everyone to bow down to him and worship him. And yet Jesus came into this world humble, lowly, and serving everyone. But then Jesus, just like Haman, ends his life up in the air on a pole, hanged, for everyone to mock him, to jeer at him, to humiliate him. Jesus experienced public humiliation beyond imagination. I've been watching uh, these World War II documentaries recently, and you know, anytime you watch uh, something about war, there's always challenges, right? There's always hard things you see. I mean, there's some good things in there too, some exciting things to celebrate, but there's some hard things you see. But for some reason, there's this scene that, that I've actually seen in a number of different places because it happened in, in different places uh, in Europe. But there's this scene I've seen, it just, I don't know, for some reason, just strikes this interesting chord in me. Uh, there were these celebrations that were taking place as the Allied powers would come into these cities and set people free. And there's this kind of victory parade where everyone's out celebrating the soldiers and celebrating their freedom. But then all of a sudden, off to the corner, what you see is these women and these young girls being kind of coddled together and pushed together into a circle as everyone stands around them. And then someone brings out shears, and one by one, they begin to shave their heads. And you kind of think, what is going on here? You know, what's happening? And then the narrator begins to explain that what's happening is these women had gotten together with German soldiers during the war. These women and young girls had shacked up with the enemy, and now that the Allied powers had come in and the Nazi powers were pushed out, they were being put to public shame. I think the reason I was so shocked by this is that the way these people handled this was, was, was so interesting. Right? They didn't arrest these women. They didn't kill these women. They didn't kick these women out of the town. They chose to shave their heads. It's estimated that over 20,000 women had their head shaved during this uh, time across Europe. Now, if you look into this, uh, you'll see that there's a lot of messiness to this. It wasn't an exact science. And um, with it, like anything with war, there's, there's messiness to it. But as we look at this shame and as we, as we see what happened to them, I think something dawns on us. That physical pain is really hard. Physical pain is not something that anybody wants. But shame is the kind of pain that cuts down to your soul. Shame and humiliation are the kind of things that make you wish you were dead. But this humiliation that we see even occur in life like this, it can't even remotely compare, can't even remotely compare to the humiliation of crucifixion. To be crucified was to be stripped, to be nailed up to a tree up in the air for everyone to see, to be exposed, to be vulnerable, 
for people to walk by, and as we see in the case of Jesus, to mock, to laugh, to slap, to hit, to poke. They did put a crown on Jesus' head, but it was a crown of thorns. Jesus went through excruciating pain, but he also endured unfathomable shame. There's nothing more humiliating than to see the Son of God hanging, dying, bleeding on a cross. So what is happening while Jesus is hanging there in humiliation and in agony? Well, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells us what's happening. He writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, every single one of us, we have sided with the enemy. Every single one of us has shacked up with evil, have thrown in our lot with those who rebel against God. Every single one of us have turned against God, and what that makes us is that makes us traitors. And what traitors deserve is a traitor's treatment. This shame, this humiliation, it's what you and I deserve for our sin. But the gospel of Jesus Christ it turns judgment upside down because Jesus was willing to enter into our humiliation, because Jesus was willing to descend down into what we deserved, it totally transforms our relationship to God's judgment. See, let's think back through this, uh, through, through what we've been talking about this morning. The cross of Jesus Christ, it totally transforms that moment of exposure when everything about us is brought to light and all the things hidden in the darkness are brought out into the light. The cross of Jesus Christ transforms that into a moment where we actually receive forgiveness from God. Our terror that we should have as we face the coming judgment the cross of Jesus Christ transforms that into the deepest gratitude. Remember, when all your sins, when all your faults are exposed on that day, if you're in Christ, it won't be to heap guilt and condemnation down upon your head. It will be to heap up what it means to you that Jesus has died in your place. Our punishment that we rightly deserve the punishment that we rightly deserve, the cross of Jesus Christ transforms that. So we actually now have confidence that God will make things right on our behalf. The God who should be against us, the God who we actually should be at enmity with, he now stands at our side promising that in the end he will settle every score for us. And our humiliation, the humiliation we deserve the humiliation and shame that I'm sure many of us feel. The cross transforms that into humility. Whereas beggars, we actually receive God's mercy, and here's the thing, and our hearts soften towards one another. The cross of Jesus Christ transforms the judgment of God. So two things this morning as we conclude. Um, first, I want to I want to read to you the answer that the Heidelberg Catechism gives to question 52. So let me remind you of the question. 
the Catechism asks, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And here's the answer. In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. For those who put their trust in Jesus, that coming future day of judgment is a comfort. It is a comfort, not a terror. But here's the other thing I want to do. I want to take just a minute, and I want to give you a, a, a moment of silence to, to consider some things. I would assume as we've been working through our passage this morning, those two things, warning and comfort, warning and comfort, you probably found yourself in one or the other more strongly. And first, I want to say this. If you're someone who has, if you've been hearing this passage, you've been listening to what I said, and you're feeling that sense of warning at the judgment of God, let it drive you towards Jesus. Let it drive you towards the one who gave his life for sinners. But also, you may be sitting here, and you may be desperate for comfort. You may be desperate for God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself in settling your scores. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to take a moment, give you a moment of silence. And I want, this is the question I want you to ask yourself. What step, what step do I need to take in light of the warning and the comfort of God's judgment? What step do I need to take in light of the warning and the comfort of God's judgment? Let's take a moment. Lord God, as we consider the story of Haman, we're glad that we're able to cheer as we see justice served. We're glad, Lord, that we're able to know that you are a just judge, and that is a good thing. God, we're glad that you settle every score, but as we look at Haman, what we also see, Lord, is your son Jesus hanging on the cross. We see him descend into our humiliation, into our death. Lord, we see Jesus taking upon himself what we deserved. And so, Lord, we just we pray this morning that seeing Jesus would drive us towards you, seeing Jesus would drive us to cry out to you for mercy. Lord, that we wouldn't run off trying to fix things in our own strength. We wouldn't run off trying to reform ourselves according to our own plan. Lord, we just we want to more and more and more accept the fact that we're beggars, that we need you, that we come empty-handed. 
And Lord, to more and more believe that you're a good God who has promised to give good, give good gifts, that if we expose ourselves, if we call our, foul on ourselves, that you actually will meet us with forgiveness. Lord, that instead of seeing that future day as a day of terror and dread and doom, Lord, that we'll begin to see it more and more as this day of great gratitude. As you fully show us completely and wholly what it really meant that our Savior Jesus paid it all. God, take us deeper into that gratitude for our Savior. Lead us to a life that's close to your heart. It's in Jesus' name that we